0: Well, good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, looking at the entirety of the chapter this morning. And if you have, are going to use one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you'll find this on page 745. I've entitled today's sermon, Sovereign Over Tribulation. As soon as we found our place, we'll begin. All right, let's bow together. Our Lord, we do thank you for a morning to gather as a church family and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And thank you for the gift of your word. And thank you specifically for the book of Daniel. Lord, as we examine the eighth chapter of this book, help us to understand all of the images, all of the interpretations. And then help us to see how we can make application of it to our lives. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Daniel has a clear theme. The whole world is in God's hands. He is its absolute and uncontested sovereign. He alone declares the end from the beginning. And he says... My purposes shall stand, and I shall do all my good pleasure. In chapters 1 through 6 of this book, God demonstrates his sovereignty over individual lives. And so we see how he providentially works in Daniel's life, and in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and in King Nebuchadnezzar and others. Then in chapters 7 through 12, we see God demonstrate his sovereignty over history and nations. God does this by giving to Daniel a series of visions concerning the future. He is showing that he has planned the unfolding of all events, that he is in charge of them. And yet these visions are all cloaked in fantasy imagery. Why is that? Well, I believe God uses these kinds of images because they have a way of gripping us. In a way that standard teaching does not. And so it makes the prophecies more memorable for us. The fantasy imagery also invites deep contemplation on our parts. We ask ourselves, what do these images mean? What is the relationship between the images? How am I to understand them? Questions like these. And I believe that God is pleased when his people take an interest in what he has said. And then they begin to ask the questions in search the answers together. I think some of these images may also help us to understand God's perspective on human affairs. So for example, we looked at a prophecy about the Babylonian empire in a past week. And how do we think of, of Babylon? Well, we might think of it as a magnificent ancient kingdom. We might think of its beautiful architecture, its literary accomplishments, and all of these things. But how did God look at the Babylonian Empire? Well, in the vision that he provided, the empire was a hideous monster. And that seems to indicate that God did not view that empire as a magnificent or a beautiful thing. No, God saw it in all of its fallenness. In all of its false worship and its violence, God saw it as an ugly thing. So we gain God's perspective through the images that he chooses. Well, today we are in Daniel chapter 8. We're going to find the same format to today's chapter as we have found in, in the prior chapter. First, God is going to give to Daniel a vision about the future. Once again, it will be cloaked in these fantasy images But then God will also provide an interpretation of the images. And God has done this throughout the book of Daniel as well, because he not only wants us to remember what he tells us through images, but he also wants us to understand what they mean. God communicates so as to be comprehended. So he gives us images, then he gives us an interpretation. Then finally, the chapter ends with Daniel's reaction the vision he has seen, and that's when we'll consider some applications for our own lives. Let's look at this chapter now together, and let us consider the uncontested sovereignty of God. And we begin with the date for the vision. We find that in verse 1. Daniel tells us he received the vision in the third year of the king, of, of the king Belshazzar. That places Daniel's vision in the year 550 B.C. At this time, the Babylonian Empire was still the world's great superpower, but there was also a new superpower beginning to emerge. This was the Medo-Persian Empire, led by a man named Cyrus. It was beginning to grow in modern-day Iran, and the people of Babylon could see this other kingdom beginning to take shape. And so there was a lot of angst in Babylon. They knew that theirs was a kingdom in decline. They saw this new kingdom on the ascendancy, and they wondered what was going to happen. I think that's why God chose this moment to provide this particular vision. It answers some of the angst that his people were feeling. But then verse 2 gives us the place of the vision, tells us that it occurred in uh, Susa, the citadel, or that could be translated in Susa, the fortified city. And then specifically at the Ulai Canal, which was a channel of water in the same region. Now, all of this is located in modern-day Iran. It's where this new empire was beginning to grow. So you understand that physically... Physically, Daniel was still in the city of Babylon, but in the vision, God is taking him to the land of this ascendant kingdom. And he's allowing Daniel to see things there about the future. Now we turn to the content of the vision. That's verses 3 through 14, and the vision consists of three main images. First, Daniel is shown a ram. That's verses 3 and 4. He says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. Now he describes the ram. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now he describes the activity of this ram. Verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. And he did as he pleased and became great. That's the first image. Now on to the second image. It's a goat, verses 5 through 8. Daniel says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. So the ram was coming from the east, the goat comes. From the west, they're on a collision course. And he says it came west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. That means this goat was moving so swiftly, its feet weren't even hitting the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the ram became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns. Toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, I trust you've been able to track with the vision here. So Daniel sees a ram with two horns. The horns are of uneven height, and the ram is charging in every direction. He's taking possession of the land. But then Daniel sees a new image, a goat with a singular horn between his eyes. And this goat begins charging on a collision course toward the ram. And he is galloping at full speed, feet not even touching the ground. And he smacks right into the ram, crushing the ram's horns. And then he tramples the ram, killing the ram. And now the goat is the uncontested ruler of all of this land. But then something kind of unexpected happens. While the goat is at his strongest uncontested, the horn between his eyes shatters and falls. And then in its place, four new horns appear on the goat's head. And they point toward the four directions of the compass. These are the first things that Daniel sees. But now he sees a third image. That's found in verses 9 through 12. It says, And out of one of them, that is, out of one of these four new horns on the goat, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Okay, that's Israel. Verse 10, It grew great, that is, this new horn, little horn, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, meaning this new horn is becoming almost as powerful as like an archangel of heaven, incredibly, incredibly powerful, and then it goes on, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. So you see now the goat and his, his little horn, it is committing atrocities in the glorious land. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So the goat's one conspicuous horn shatters, four new horns take its place. And then a fifth horn, a little horn, grows out of one of those four points itself toward the Holy Land, Israel, and begins to commit atrocities against Israel, ending their sacrifices, openly rejecting biblical religion, slaughtering God's people, doing all that he pleases. Now we come to verse 13. Daniel writes, Then I heard a holy one speaking, And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Look, how long is this going to go on? How long will the holy land be trampled, its people crushed, the laws of God despised? How long will this happen? The answer is provided. Verse 14, And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Okay, So how long will these atrocities continue? For 2300 evenings and mornings, that that is to say 2300 days. That's a little under six and a half years. And then it would be all over. What are we to make of all of these images? You know, Daniel himself wondered about that. Look at verse 15. It says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Daniel couldn't make sense of of these very fearful images. Neither could we without the help of God. But God, in His grace, does provide us with the answer in the subsequent verses. Let's go through the interpretation together. Verse 17, the end of the verse We're told that the vision concerns, quote, the time of the end. Do you see that? concerns the time of the end. Now, as we move into the interpretation proper, looking at all of the meanings of all of the symbols, it becomes clear that by the time of the end, our Lord is referring to the final days of the old covenant era. The final days of the Old Covenant era. That is, it refers to the time just before the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before Christ came, God's people were governed by an Old Covenant, ruled by the law of Moses. They heard from God through prophets. That era was going to come to an end. A new era was going to begin, inaugurated by the first coming of Jesus. And the things that Daniel saw were things which would occur just before Christ came. Now we call this time period the intertestamental period. It's the time between the close of our Old Testament scriptures and the opening of the New Testament. This is the time period that Daniel has seen a vision about. We have another name for it. It's also called the 400 silent years because the period was 400 years long and because God was not speaking in that time period. There were no more prophets. Our Lord Jesus had not yet come. So there was no new revelation from God. Now, having a prophecy about this period in time is really significant, my friends, because it teaches us that divine silence does not mean divine inactivity. Divine silence does not mean divine inactivity. So God was not going to be providing any new revelation during that 400-year period of time. No new prophets would come. God himself would not offer any verbal communication to mankind, but that did not mean God had gone dormant, no God was still marching His plans forward. God, through His providence, was arranging the chessboard, so to speak, so that all the pieces would be exactly where they needed to be for Christ to come and fulfill His ministry. All right, so now on... Oh, I don't want to forget to mention the importance of seeing this because of the time that we are living in ourselves. We are living between the first and second comings of Christ. A time ahead of Daniel's, ahead of the 400 silent years, but it's like those years in many ways. During the time between Christ's first and second comings, God is also silent. There are no more prophets, no new apostles. God is not giving us new scriptures. But this doesn't mean God is inactive in our day. In fact, quite to the contrary, Scriptures teach that God is on the move in this age, too. God is working in and through his church. God is working among the nations of the earth, and he is setting all of the pieces together for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So don't think that because no new revelations are coming to us right now, don't think that because The only communication we have is written down in the scriptures today that God must not be interested in what's going on or that he's not involved in it. Far from it. God is very active today. All right, now on to the interpretation. We begin in verse 20. Our Lord tells us what the ram signifies. He says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, so the ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire. That's the empire on the ascendancy in modern-day Iran. That is the empire which would soon conquer Babylon and become the world's next superpower. The horns on that ram were uneven in the vision. That's because the Persian side of the Medo-Persian Empire was the more powerful of the two. And then on to the meaning of the goat. That's verse 21. It says, And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, so the ram represents Medo-Persian Empire. The goat represents the Grecian Empire. And that singular horn on the goat's head, that represents the first king of the Grecian Empire. Of course... We know his name. All of this was future to Daniel, but it's in our past. His name was Alexander the Great. And in God's time, the Grecian Empire would conquer the Medo-Persians. In the vision, the goat moved swiftly across the land, so swiftly his feet didn't even touch the ground. That's because the Grecian Empire would move at a speed with which the world had never seen before. Alexander the Great was only 20 years old when he became the king of the Grecian Empire. And he died at the age of 32. And it was a very sudden, unexpected death. He had a very short reign. And yet, during that very short period of time, he managed to conquer the Medo-Persians and then expand the borders of his empire such that they touched Egypt and India and went all the way up to Europe. It was one of the largest empires the world had ever seen. And he did it inside of 12 years. No wonder the goat is charging but not touching the ground. In the vision, we saw how the goat also hated the ram. He had wrath against the ram, and this explained the violence with which he crashed into it. Well, in the same way, Alexander hated the Medo Persians. He hated them with a passion because the Medo Persian Empire had a program of stamping out Greek culture. They wanted everything uniform, they wanted it all to be Persian. Of course, Alexander was a lover of Greek culture, so he hated the Medo-Persians for what they were doing. This was part of what motivated him to charge into them in battle and to crush them with a violence rarely seen. And then once he came to power, he began to spread the Greek culture so that Greek became the universal language of the ancient world. Greek culture was spread far and wide under Alexander. But then back to the vision again. As soon as that goat had killed the ram and had uncontested rule over all of the land, suddenly that great horn between his eyes crumbled. Well, That refers to the sudden death of Alexander. As I said, he died at the age of 32, of an illness still unknown today. And when he died, since there was no succession plan in place, his kingdom was broken up into parts, and each of those parts was ruled by his generals. There were four generals, four provinces to be exact. There was Ptolemy who ruled over Egypt. There was Lysimachus who ruled Greece. Cassander who ruled Thrace. And then Seleucus who ruled Mesopotamia. This corresponds with the image in the vision where the one horn. Collapsed, but then four new horns appeared on the goat. These are the four provinces led by the four generals who succeeded Alexander the Great. Now we come to verses 23 through 26 where the interpretation takes an awful turn. You'll remember in the vision, one of those four horns grows another horn. A little horn, and it points itself toward Israel. And it begins committing atrocities against Israel. Now we learn more about that. Look at verse 23. It says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, that is at the final stages of the Grecian empire, what's left of it, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of boldface. This is the little horn. A king of boldface. One who understands riddles shall arise. And his power shall be great, but not by his own power. That means out of one of these four provinces, a new king is going to emerge. And this king will be so powerful that it's clear he is not being powered just by his own strength. Here is a man empowered by the devil himself. He is a tool. Of Satan. Verse 24: His power shall be great, not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy many mighty men and the people who are the saints. So, this devil-empowered tyrant is going to march into the Holy Land, he's going to kill God's people. You remember, but in Daniel's time, God's people, the Jews, they were scattered all over the place. But by this man's time, the Grecian Empire, they're all back in the Holy Land again. Now he's going after them. And it continues. Verse 25, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper in his land. And in his own mind he shall become great. And without warning he shall He shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That means this man is going to be so full of arrogance, he will try to to wage war against the God of heaven himself. But then look what happens. It says, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. He shall wage war against God himself, and so God himself will crush him. That's how he will find his end. Now, once again, this was all future to Daniel, but it's history to us, so we have another name. This little horn is a man named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. Antiochus was born around 215 BC, which would put him about 90 years after Alexander and a full 300 years after Daniel. Antiochus took control of the Seleucid province. That was the one just to the east of Israel. Antiochus was loved by many of his people. He was known to scatter money on the roads for the common people to pick up. He also gave gifts to people he didn't know. He contributed money to the Temple of Zeus at Athens and to the altar at Delos. He put his Western military forces on a massive parade in Daphne. And he held great banquets with the aristocracy that included the best spices and clothing and food. So he was beloved by many. And isn't it often true that a tyrant is a very charismatic figure? He knows how to make friends. But Antiochus IV was also one of the worst anti-Semites that the Jewish people have ever had to live under. Most of the Jews, as I said, were back in Israel by his day. But the nation of Israel was also a vassal state under his rule. And Antiochus was determined to destroy everything distinctive about Judaism. Antiochus IV was much like his predecessors. He believed the only way to have a stable empire was if everybody had the same religion and everybody practiced the same culture. And as he looked at his empire, the Seleucid Empire, he saw that everybody was pretty much on the same page except this little vassal state called Israel where there were Jews worshiping the true God in a temple and submitting themselves to the law of Moses and Antiochus IV could not tolerate that. And so he set his sights on Israel. And he was going to launch a campaign against them that would either convert them all or kill them all. didn't matter to him as long as he had homogeny in his empire. And so he marched in. And he found the Jewish people resistant to his program. And so he banned the worship of the true God. And then he burned as many copies of the Hebrew scriptures as he could. He also required the eating of pork on pain of death, something that you know would be an outrage to the Jewish people. He also made circumcision illegal. That was a very important practice to the Jews. And then, worst of all, he dedicated the Jewish temple to Zeus and he sacrificed a pig on its altar. This was the ultimate outrage. Or maybe it was this, he also gave a new name to himself. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, God manifest in the flesh. So no wonder Daniel's vision said he'll be great in his own mind. He saw himself as deity. But friends, his persecution was very short-lived. In fact, it only lasted a little more than six years just like the prophecy that Daniel received said. Then Antiochus IV was struck down with a sudden, unexplainable illness, and he died a horrific death. And in the Jewish book of 2 Maccabees, we have a contemporary record of how this man died. It says, "...he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief." And with sharp internal tortures, he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. And the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms. That's probably why he had that stabbing pain in his gut. He was infected by worms. He fell out of the chariot, he broke open, and they spilled out. While he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Then the book of 2 Maccabees offers this commentary on his death. It says, Thus he who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. Just as the prophecy declared, he would set himself against the God of heaven, and so God himself would strike down this tyrant, and so God did. So friends, we've now looked at the images that Daniel saw. We have looked at the interpretation which God himself has provided us, In his word, and now let's consider some ways that this prophecy can apply to us. As we do that, let's first take a look at how it impacted Daniel. We see that in verse 27. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let's start with that first part. Daniel was appalled by the vision. can you blame him? I mean, it was an ugly, ugly scene placed before him, scene of, of death and destruction, of demonic powers, of violent deaths. We, too, should be appalled as we read such a vision. Specifically, we should be appalled at what fallen human beings are capable of doing to one another. That's what appalled Daniel, hearing about these awful kingdoms rising, crushing their predecessors, and then being crushed themselves by successors, as we hear about this godless tyrant who would wage war against God's people. My friends, this is what fallen human nature is capable of. Give it time, give it power, give it opportunity, and this is how it reacts. My friends, this should cause all of us to renew our commitment to gospel truth. Because the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means every single one of us has a fallen nature. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And it's only by the grace of God that we haven't taken that nature as far as it can go. Knowing our own state, we should offer a prayer to God in faith and repentance. Asking for Him to forgive us of all of our transgressions. Asking asking Him to give us a, a new heart and a new spirit. Turning to Him in faith and in trust. Because that is the only hope we have for leaving the path that we see here in this vision and setting ourselves upon a better path. It is our only hope. So yes, be appalled by the vision and then let it turn you to faith and repentance. But then we see another reaction on Daniel's part. We see he was humbled by the vision. The very end of the verse, he says he did not understand it. Now, surely God provided a a lot of detail, particularly in the interpretation, a lot of details about what was to come, but there was still some, some information missing, wasn't there? He didn't have names and dates, things that we have, because we're looking back on history. So Daniel had a good outline of what was to come, but he still didn't know exactly how it was all going to play out. He didn't understand. This humbled Daniel before God. It forced Daniel simply to trust in God and his plans, The things would, would unfold exactly as God had said, even if he didn't fully understand how it would all happen. And friends, we must do the same. Yes, Daniel's vision is now our past, but there are other prophecies of Scripture that are yet to be fulfilled. And while we think we understand the basic contours of those prophecies, we must approach those with humility too. Because God has not given us the names and the dates and all of the places in those prophecies. We ought to be humble as we think about the future that awaits this world. And we ought to, in humility, rest in the sovereignty of God. Even in those moments of history when many wonder whether God is even there, like our time. Whether they wonder if God is in control. We see through the very fact that He offers prophecy, that yes, He is there. He not only knows what's coming, but He ordains all things that come to pass. And that there is never a moment in human history when God is off of His throne. And so these prophecies ought to humble us. We ought to submit ourselves to the plans and purposes of God and trust that every new page in church history is a page that he has written and that the end of the full story will be glorious. With regard to persecution, I think far from being a distraction from God's plans, today's text shows us that God has actually woven adversity into his plans in such a way that his good purposes cannot be fulfilled apart from them. So no, persecutions and wars, these do not take away from God's power. They don't sidetrack his plans. They are part of his plans. For example, Antiochus IV's extreme persecution of the Jewish people was the very tool that God used to prepare the world for the arrival of Jesus the first time. You see, Antiochus would be relentless in his persecution, but it would only last a little over six years. Then Antiochus would be gone. And after that experience, the Jewish people hardened their resolve. They put in new structures to make sure that the temple could not be desecrated. And that temple had to stand for Jesus' first coming, for his ministry to be fulfilled. (coughs) Excuse me. And the Jewish people also rededicated themselves to the law of Moses, even creating new laws of their own to be a hedge around the law of Moses so that they would be faithful to God. And of course, some of these laws are things that Jesus will encounter during his ministry and challenge. Some of the people who reacted to Antiochus became the Pharisees, and Jesus would have a lot to say to the Pharisees during his earthly ministry. You see, Antiochus' persecutions were awful, but they also set the stage for Jesus' ministry. Where it would take place, the things that he would say, the things that he would do, the kinds of people that he would interact with, all of it was established by God, and this Persecution prepared for Jesus to come and interact with a world that was exactly what it should be. We could also consider the example of Christ himself, how he was persecuted throughout his earthly life, culminating in the greatest act of injustice in all of human history, his crucifixion. And yet, far from being a distraction from God's plans, we know that the crucifixion of Christ was part of God's plan to secure an all-sufficient atonement for us. We would not be saved were it not for the sacrificial death and burial and resurrection of our Lord. And so the sufferings of Jesus were for the purpose of doing great good. And friends, the Scripture also tells us that one day in our future, An antichrist will arise. And he will inflict persecution on the people of God there on earth at the time, the likes of which the world has never seen. So bad will it be that the scriptures say God had to cut it short, lest all of his people be slaughtered. It will be unprecedented persecution. But you know, it will also set the stage for the final revelation of Christ and for the inauguration of his kingdom on earth. See, friends, God seems to have designed history to unfold in this way. That momentous events in in redemptive history, like the first coming of Christ, and the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the salvation that it secured, like the future coming of God's kingdom, that all of these great milestones of, of redemptive history, they are always preceded by times of tumult and suffering, times of persecution. And God uses the ugliness of the persecution to show the glories of what comes afterwards in all of their brilliance. For as this should cause us to trust in God at all times even to live as optimists, to live with confidence as we face the future. We don't know precisely what the future will hold, but we do know that whatever comes, it is part of the plan of God, and that his plans are, not, are, are never thwarted, that his plans are always good. And while God is not responsible for sin or of any of the evil consequences that sin brings, yet it is all under God's superintending power. And he knows how to take bad things and turn them around for good. Something else about these trials we see from Daniel's vision, we see it all over the scripture, they are always temporary too. Antiochus would only be allowed a reign of terror for about six and a half years. Our Lord was on this earth for 30-some years, suffering persecution. In a future day of tribulation, there will be seven years of man's wrath against his people, against God's people, and God's wrath against sinful man. But these times are brief. They're temporary. And then there is eternal glory afterwards. The suffering endured under Antiochus IV brought us Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, eternal good. Christ's own suffering and death led to our salvation being secured. The coming wrath will set the stage for the everlasting kingdom of God in which there will be no more suffering ever, no more tears, no more pain. Every trial comes to an end, and then there is glory. And then finally we see... Daniel also reacted by going back to the king's business. That's what we ought to do as well, my friends. We can be appalled by the vision. We can also respond in humble faith to the vision. But then, we've got to get to work. Our God has given us a task to do. It's the Great Commission. And He's given us an institution to fulfill it with, the local church. So let us be about our God's business Let us roll up our sleeves and do his work until he finally returns. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for helping us as we walk through this passage with all of its complicated images and then interpretations, many unfamiliar things here. Lord, I pray that the the central lessons of the chapter would take a firm hold of us, might we not forget them. Principally, Lord, help us not to forget that you are sovereign over all things, that you control the unfolding of history, and that, yes, you permit evil to occur, but you also know how to turn it around to accomplish everlasting good. Help us to hold on to these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.